And good evening, or good morning, or good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the other side of midnight. That really magical time between dusk and dawn where the things we normally would pass by in daytime and go, oh, come on, give me a break. At this time of night, we don't. We pause and we take a closer look. This is going to be a very complicated and at some level a very difficult show because what this show is designed to do is to grapple with things that other people don't grapple with. And you know my <clears throat> real resistance to the concept of paranormal. You know, I think anything that you can measure or experience or or validate or confirm through independent sourcing or research is normal. It's not paranormal. The whole paranormal thing, I think, is almost a double speak. You know, if you want to talk about CIA-engineered, you know, lexicography and and semantics and all that. So to separate reality into parts of reality that we pay attention to and parts we don't pay attention to, I I think is very artificial, and it doesn't help the larger picture, which is to all of us figure out what is really going on. So we're going to grapple tonight with some very deep concepts. And that's another kind of semantic thing, the idea of metaphysics versus physics. Although meta really is better because it means big, means the whole, means the largest set of. So metaphysics is a very interesting unifier for the physics that I'm familiar with, which is stuff you can measure, and the physics that some of my guests are more familiar with, which is the stuff that you experience and feel, but it's very hard to measure. And we're going to try to bridge those gaps tonight as well. In case you have been living on Mars for the last several you know, months and don't know what's going on here on planet Earth, particularly on the southern border of the United States, there's some pretty awful, bizarre, and bewildering things going on. Things that uh, are not familiar, that I have not seen uh, personally for many, many, many decades since I lived in the south below the Mason-Dixon line and had uh, church fathers come into my parents' restaurant because we serve blacks in our roadside rest, in our bed and breakfast, in our restaurant, and they would ring the church bell 150 to 200 times on a Sunday morning, just across the street from where we had our, our establishment, uh, in a little place called Lewistown, Maryland, which is on the road from Frederick up to Catoctin Furnace, where the president has a retreat up in the uh, mountains, Shangri-La. And when my mother confronted one of these church deacons uh, about why, if we're having tourists trying to sleep in on a Sunday morning, stopping, you know, to rest before they continue their journey, when she asked why they would be doing this, he said, we will do it as long as you serve coloreds or you leave town. So growing up, I was confronted very directly with, um, with prejudice, with racism, with people who will do anything to further their political ends, who will justify anything to further their political ends. So that probably accounts for the fact that I'm looking at this current situation and I'm saying, why in the second decade of the 20th, 21st century, why is this happening in my America? Why did John Meacham write a book, which if you go to the other side of midnight.com, and you click on tonight's guest page, which is go click on that banner, that beautiful banner that Kinthea made up for tonight, for Saturday night, the 24th of June. Click on that. The Soul of America, a 26,000-year hyperdimensional choice. Then you scroll all the way down to the bottom of my section, which is the cover of John Meacham's bestseller, The Soul of America, A Battle for Our Better Angels. And I thought these two ideas, you know, that we're, we're supposed to be the exceptional ones. We're supposed to be, as Reagan used to call us, the shining city on a hill. 
And lately we haven't been very shining. We're doing all kinds of very strange things that fly in the face of 240 some years of history progressing in what we hoped was the right direction. So we're going to grapple with a lot of this stuff tonight. And I brought in two of my very favorite guests, uh, Georgia Lambert and John Francis. And we're going to tackle the physics and metaphysics of what is going on right now. Why is this time special? Why is, why is there something so unique occurring that apparently has not occurred for maybe 150 years? And we'll, we'll kind of just get into some of the, 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 the details of that. But before we get there, let me give you a couple of news items. Um, while all this is occurring on planet Earth, over on Mars, which is getting closer and closer each night, if you go out before dawn and look to the east, to the southeast, you'll see that brilliant, glowing, orange, you know, glaring pinpoint. That's Mars. We're approaching Mars as we orbit the sun. Mars orbits slower than we do, so we're overtaking Mars. And on the night of the 27th of July... which is just about, uh, I think, four weeks, five weeks, yeah, about five weeks away. We will be opposite Mars, or Mars, I'm sorry, will be opposite us in terms of a line from Mars to Earth to the Sun. This is called an opposition. And because of the way the two orbits work, oppositions of Mars occur roughly every two Earth years. But not all oppositions are created equal. Because the orbit of Mars is distinctly very elliptical compared to Earth, which is almost circular. So every 17 years, we get really close to Mars during a period of an opposition. And they're not synchronized. You don't have the closest approach the same night as the opposition. Because again, in this celestial mechanics, it never repeats exactly. It's close, but it's not exact. So... On the 31st of July, uh, I'm sorry, of, yeah, of, of July, we will be closest to Mars than we've been for about two years. Actually, closer than we have been for 17 years. And the distance is going to be roughly, give or take, 35 million miles. Now, there is a rumor out there that this dust storm, which has grown, as I said a couple weeks ago when I was, was on the air live, um, we're approaching that window where Mars could, in fact, develop what's called a global dust storm. Early astronomers, you know, last couple of centuries looking at Mars, noticed that during the oppositions, when we were closest, um, there were times when they could not see the surface of Mars. It was obscured. It was blanked out. It was kind of like a featureless, salmonish ball of light in the telescope uh, because there was a lot of dust. Now, of course, we know the physics and we know that because of the climate on Mars, the fact that it's very cold and it gets maybe 70-ish at the equator during the summer in the, in the southern hemisphere, um, you can get differential heating. So you get what's called convection, meaning that hot air rises and cold air falls and that scoops up this dust which is finer than talcum powder because it hasn't rained there in literally, you know, millions of years. So there are times when you get these global eruptions. I mean, normal dust storms on Mars will, you know, kick up for a week or so and they'll cover, a, you know, a region and then they'll die off. But every once in a while, like every 17 years, when Mars is closest to the sun and we're closest to Mars, you'll see this event matriculate into a global storm. The, I was at JPL during the uh, insertion of Mariner 9 <clears throat> into orbit around Mars back in 1971, and we had a global huge dust storm, amazing dust storm. And for weeks after the spacecraft was in orbit, looking down with its cameras, couldn't see anything because all they were taking uh, was pictures of, of the top of the atmosphere filled with dust. And then the dust began to lower, and we noticed this strange geometry of dark spots on one side of the planet. And those turned out to be these incredible tall mountains 
uh, Olympus Mons, Arcea Mons, and the other two on one hemisphere of Mars above the equator at 19.5. That's where uh, Olympus Mons is. And as the dust receded, kind of like water, you know, draining in the bathtub, the tops of these volcanic mountains, these huge shield volcanoes, poked up through the dust. And the pictures that Mariner 9 was taking every day, picture after picture after picture. In fact, it got so boring, we were looking at monitors because they would, you know, stream this stuff live there at JPL for all the reporters who gathered from all over the planet to cover these then, events back then. And we saw these spots appear. And before the spots had appeared, one wag had said, well, NASA's taking pictures of bedsheets and then giving us pictures of enhanced bedsheets because the pictures were blank. There was nothing visible except for microphonics and noise. You could see in the picture and all, you know, the imperfections of digital transmission of data across millions of miles. Way back in the early, early Stone Age days of the space program, remember this was 1971, and then the dust lowered and we saw this geometric pattern of these four dark splotches in this amazing geometric array on one side of the planet. And for the first time, we realized that these were the tops of these mountains extending up to like, you know, 60,000 feet above the mean datum of the planet, poking up through the dust, like, you know, having dirty water in a bathtub draining, and then you see whatever toys the kids left at the bottom of the, of the tub as the water drains down and, 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 and reveals them. Well, that's happening again, and there are all kinds of bizarre theories out there. Um, there's, there's a guy in South Africa named Wayne Herschel that we've been trying to get on the air, and uh, there are difficulties with getting him on the air. He's, he's published many years ago a very interesting Mars investigation that I wanted to kind of catch up and see where he is. Well, he's just posted on his Facebook page the most bizarre theory that this huge dust storm on Mars, which has now enveloped both the Opportunity rover, the surviving rover of the two Athena rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, that were sent there, you know, decades ago, and the Curiosity rover. Now, the problem for Opportunity is it's solar-powered. So a couple of weeks ago, it sent a message home saying, I'm signing off and going into hibernation until this thing clears. Whereas Curiosity, of course, is powered by nuclear energy, so it doesn't matter how thick the dust is. But if you uh, if if you look at some of the websites scattered around the internet, you'll see the pictures that Opportunity sent back before it had to close down, you know, shop and kind of huddle in a in a stasis mode, hoping that the power will remain enough in the batteries so it can wake up again. Apparently, this is the most severe dust storm that opportunity gets faced ever since it got there back in uh, 2000, 2003. So we don't know tonight whether this epic storm, which now completely covers Mars, is going to last for months or just for another couple weeks, but it's uh, it, 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 it could mean the end to the opportunity rover because without power, the electronics will freeze and Without power, you can't power radios and instruments, and so it's going to be nip and tuck. Now, on the other side of the planet, Curiosity we find because it's powered, as I said, by nuclear energy. So it doesn't even—it's not even phased by the dust storms, but it has been tracking the blotting out of the sun and the movement of the dust at ground level around to the other side of the planet. I mean, this is a very major mystery. What causes most storms to peter out and a few to rage and cover for weeks and sometimes even a couple of months, the entire planet Mars? That may be one of the positive results that comes out of this, this dust storm now because the physics are there. We're monitoring from spacecraft in orbit. We have Curiosity on the ground, which will be unfazed and hopefully, cross your fingers, opportunity like it has before in other dust storms that were severe, it will pull through. Now, Monday of this week, as this is all going on on Mars, the President of the United States kind of fulfilled 
a, a long-term tease that he's been doing now for several months. Remember several months ago where he was speaking to a bunch of Marines in California? And he kind of free associated the idea of a space force to accompany the first civilian missions to Mars. Kind of out of left field, kind of weird. Well, this week he pulled the trigger and at the third meeting of the uh, National Space Council, which is chaired by the vice president, uh, Mike Pence, um, the president issued an order to the Defense Department to basically develop the sixth branch of the U.S. military. You've got uh, Marines, Air Force, Army, Navy. Uh, who am I missing? Um, Air, I mentioned Air Force, okay. And they would add a Space Force to round out the panoply of the armed services of the United States. Oh, Coast Guard. Coast Guard. I missed Coast Guard. So... The only issue here is it can't be up to the president or the White House, the executive branch. This is going to require congressional action. And it's going to be very interesting in the coming months to see how the Congress comes down in terms of a space force. Why do we need an armed space force? Is it possible that there's something out there or someone out there that this space force would be arrayed against. Now, I know there are people who say, oh, look at China, look at Russia, you know, it's, but look, uh, we command the high ground. If you're only talking about, you know, communication satellites and such or reconnaissance satellites, uh, you can perfectly defend them uh, from the ground. You don't need a space force to defend them unless this is a cover for an unveiling of rumors that have been rampant for many, many years, that we have a secret space program, apart from NASA, apart from the Air Force, that there really is already a space force with, you know, vehicles, spaceships, real spaceships, not not rockets, you know, real anti-gravity spaceships, and that this is the president's first move to unveil that reality. Well, we shall see. Now, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the banner for tonight's show for the 2023rd and you scroll down on my items, number three, this same week that the president announced that he's going to attempt to create a space force, um, there was another academic model which was published in the peer reviewed literature. A group who believe that we are the only advanced civilization in the observable universe. I mean, it's kind of silly. But it's in the same time frame that the President of the United States is tacitly admitting that maybe not everything we're being told about what's going on upstairs, we've been told. Maybe there's more to the story than we know. Be that as it may, all this going on, this this kind of cosmic backdrop, there are some very bizarre events going on tonight on planet Earth. You all may know that um, several months ago, a couple of months ago, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions stood in several forums and announced that they would have a no tolerance, a zero tolerance policy for any um, illegal immigrants, people who step across the line that don't come through the the the, the agreed upon uh, entry points for legal entry into the United States, that they would arrest those people, they would arrest their families, and they would separate families from parents. They'd put the kids in detention, they would put the parents in detention, they would put the parents through a legal process and the kids would basically wind up artificial orphans until they were reconnected. And that's when really the you-know-what hit the rotating kitchen appliance because it now is obvious from all kinds of reporting in all kinds of cities across 17, 18, 19 states that as part of this bizarre plan to break up families of refugees coming to the United States per international agreement seeking asylum from horrors going on in three principal countries in Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Uh, 
where uh, Robin and I have been. We, we were in Guatemala and we saw some of this firsthand that all those refugees, all those parents fleeing death and fates worse than death would be picked up and treated as common criminals. But worse because when you literally step across the line under U.S. law and you enter the country illegally, it is a misdemeanor. It's not a felony. It's a misdemeanor. And the normal procedure in previous administrations was to basically put them through a uh, judicial process. They are given a court date to come back and adjudicate their case. And then they are released to relatives, to sometimes it was like monitor detention with ankle bracelets or caseworkers or whatever. And the recidivism rate, the, 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 the return to the, to the court for the court date among those that were assigned caseworkers is upwards of 99%, which means you don't have to throw kids in jail or parents in jail or, and I'm, I'm getting emails, people say they don't believe that. All they have to do is go and look at the statistics from the border people, from Customs and Border you know, uh, Patrol. And that's where those statistics are coming from. So, and you can also go to the courts. You can Google and go to the courts and see what the rates are uh, for people who were just turned loose and did not have any monitoring or any, sorry about that, any incarceration. The rate of return was something like 75%, which means 25% didn't show up for their court date, but 75% do. The policy that was implemented now to basically, and this sounds hyperbolic and over the top, but to basically rip babies from the arms of mothers, and we know this has happened, and it's happened thousands of times now. There's something like 23 to 2,500 kids ranging in age from babies a few months old all the way up to 17 that have been taken, stripped from families, and segregated in wire cages, sleeping on the, on mats on the floor under little mylar space blankets. All of that is going on because of this change in policy from what had been worked out years and years before. Now, there were legal challenges to this going on in, um, in previous years, particularly on the, in the Obama administration back in 2014. We had an incredible influx of unaccompanied minors. This is kids that arrived at the border and came across illegally because they were on their own. They had no parents. They may have had, uh, you know, traffickers who took money from the parents to get the kids to the United States, but they obviously are not relatives or whatever. So we had a huge thousands and thousands and thousands of unaccompanied minors, and those wound up being put in cages, yes, because the Customs and Border Patrol people were totally unequipped to handle this enormous influx, which again was precipitated by situations not unlike what's going on in Syria or in Afghanistan or in the Middle East, anywhere where there's war. There is war, literally a war is raging in three countries in Central America and the refugees from those wars, I mean, gangs come to families and they want to rape the, the girls and they want to press the guys, the, the, the boys, into service to serve the gang. And it's basically a throwback of centuries in terms of social orders, social policy, social, social uh, discourse, anything social. So they're leaving on journeys that are incredibly long, incredibly expensive, incredibly dangerous – to wind up on our shores and instead of, as the Statue of Liberty says, you know, give us our tempest tossed, we are putting them in jail. Now, I know that in the last few days, this president signed an executive order basically countermanding uh, Attorney General Sessions' uh, policy and plans. And now the procedure is going to be to keep families together. But if you have a zero-tolerance policy where you arrest the parents, where you deny their claims for asylum, and you think of them as criminals, 
that means you're going to incarcerate the entire family. And because of a of a um, very famous case, the Flores case back in 97, which was re-adjudicated with some amendments in 2014, the limited period of time where the government can hold children is 20 days. I find that very interesting because it's such a whisker away from 19.5. It's like you round up 19.5, you get 20. So for 20 days, they can be held as a family unit in incarceration, in detention. And then something has to happen. The kids have to be under law, turned loose. And the parents, if they're if, if, if their cases are prosecuted, they will be part of the judicial system, part of the immigration court system, part of the, you know, uh, ICE, etc. And they will be held in, in, in jail, which means you're right back to the same situation. You are separating forcibly parents and children. I mean, this is such a nightmare. This is such a mess. This is such uh, who we are not. So what I want to do tonight is I want to explore bigger picture issues from, as they're very fond of saying in, in, in Washington these days, you know, the view from 30,000 feet. And I want to try to do this in a way which is, you know, respectful of facts, independent, verified information that we can count on. But I also want to do it in a way that looks to, in the words of John Meacham's book, our better angels. Are we not better than this? Are we not um, something? Something seems to have happened to have to have curtailed the normal empathy, the normal humanity. I mean, there was a a um, pundit um, on on Fox and Friends the other morning. I don't remember his name offhand, but he sat blatantly on live television. He says, "Well, they're not our kids." Since when? I mean, this is the nation of the Marshall Plan. This is the nation that's rescued more people around the world than any other in history. This is a nation which has expended its last full measure of devotion and treasure and blood and, and, and monetary resources to attempt to rescue people who have no genetic or relationship connection to people in this country. And now when refugees show up on our shores and on our borders, we are arresting them and putting them in jail and saying in public that they've been fed stories, sob stories, a password to freedom, etc., etc. Now, what I find interesting is that so many people who have kids of their own, if the situation were reversed, how would they react if they were confronted by a situation at home where it was either leave or die, or leave or have one of your children impressed into a gang against their will and carrying out awful, horrible things, or to have your daughters raped repeatedly. And again, these are not fairy stories because there's a world press that has been able to go to these countries and see what is happening. So what we're going to deal with tonight is what is happening to us? How did we get in this situation? And how do we get out? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Hour of the Other Side of Midnight. 
Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Kinthea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you as you're listening the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit midnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. And good evening and good morning and good night, as Truman said. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is going to be very complicated, so I'm going to kind of change what I was planning to do midstream, and I'm going to get everybody on the air, all our panelists, and then we will uh, kind of have at it. Um, Greg Ahrens is with us tonight. Greg is going to be giving us an update on a very bizarre part of this story, because Right after the president signed this executive order, countermanding his order 
to carry out this uh, uh, zero tolerance policy. So we're not separating. The government is now se not separating families and parents, children and parents, uh, since three or four days ago. Uh, suddenly, the first lady of the United States, Melania Trump, gets on an airplane, an official U.S. government aircraft, and secretly flies to McAllen, Texas, to visit one of the detention centers for some of these kids. There's no pre-announcement, which is understandable because of the security concerns. Um, and she arrives, and an incredible controversy erupted over what she was wearing when she arrived, I'm sorry, when she departed Andrews Air Force Base, and then what she was wearing when she arrived back at Andrews Air Force Base later that afternoon. Because she was wearing this bizarre, I mean, truly bizarre raincoat, which on an errand of mercy where the First Lady, as emissary of all of us, is visiting children in distress. Children has been her major forte. She spent, you know, months and months and months in New York, separated from the president because their son Barron was in school and she didn't want to take him out. And people have seen them together over many years. And there's no doubt that Milani is an incredibly devoted mother, a real mother, not, not you know, a kind of a, uh, what, the, what do they call those, helicopter parents? No, this is a, this is a real mom. But she leaves... Andrews and arrives back at Andrews wearing a raincoat which says I really don't care do you so my first guest is Greg Ahrens Greg is uh is kind of our ritual guy he looks into alignments he posts in my absence over on Facebook our Facebook pages the particularly the Enterprise Mission Facebook pages Greg you've been looking into this um what the hell was going on with this raincoat and what kind of weird double, triple, or quadruple messages was the First Lady sending uh, that no one could <laughs> seem to figure out? You're on the Hi, Richard. I, I, I'm, I'm befuddled. I, I have no idea what what they're trying to say with this or, you know, who's messaging to whom and whatever. But well, first of all, the, the, the office of the First Lady over in the East Wing said categorically there was nothing meant by the raincoat with the lettering that it wasn't messaging at all. Right. And, oh, she said there's no hidden message. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and then a few hours later, a couple hours later, the president gets on Twitter, <clears throat> which he is, you know, want to do, and says, of course it was a message. It was against the fake media. She doesn't care about the fake news going to be made up about her trip. Kind of validating the idea that it was part of some kind of conscious messaging. But what really rang my chimes was when I noticed the key numbers because every news organization, big and small, all over the planet, not only covered the raincoat and what the message said on the back, I don't really care, do you, which is stunningly bizarre for an errand of mercy by the First Lady of the United States. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, what they, what they call that... Uh, uh, in, intellectual disconnection, or th th there's a there's a psychologist term for that. If you if you want to really throw a monkey wrench into what you're doing, and having multiple confusing messages, this this is guaranteed to do it. Well, there was a further step up that made me realize this could not be an accident, because this is a first lady who's married to ostensibly a billionaire who has been known to show up in jackets costing over $51,000. Let me repeat that. This is someone who lives in a tower gilded with gold, who will never want it for a thing in her life since she met Donald Trump many years ago, and who wears apparel like, uh, I, I can't think of a suitable analogy, thousands of dollars for dresses, $50,000 for a jacket, this jacket, every news organization on the planet told us, came from a bargain basement store. Anybody can go out and buy this thing, and it costs, <clears throat> wait for it, $39. And every story made sure they attached the price of this jacket, this incredibly bewildering jacket with the lettering. 
that it only costs $39. Now, why is that important? Well, for those who followed the show, 39 is twice 19.5. So ding, 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 ding. This somehow, Greg, was part of a ritual. So I asked you before you came on the show tonight to do a little digging and to try to find out when that flight, when, you know, the the Air Force uh, jet that took her from Andrews Air Force Base in D.C. to McAllen, Texas, and then back, when it left and when it arrived, that kind of thing. And what did you find out? Well, well, I found out that I couldn't find out. It wasn't, it wasn't publicly available. At least, you know, I did a lot of digging last night, and then this afternoon I did some more digging, and I just couldn't find the... I, I even tried going on flight aware and trying to get, uh, you know, flight times out of Andrews. And of course, since it's a military plane, it probably, uh, you know, hidden, not to the, to the public knowledge. So, uh, yeah, and usually in the old, uh, uh, the old white house, <laughs> when Obama was there and even before that, they would list, the schedules of you know things that happen with the first family and and uh, you know the times that they left the the airport and the time they left the White House and this and that and just, this is just not on the the new website but uh, now I did notice and as I I sent an email the other night last night um, that I, I noticed the thirty nine dollars and thought oh yeah twice nineteen point five. And then, of course, I remembered that Andrews Air Force Base is at 39 degrees Exactly. North. The nation's capital, and the founding fathers, the- in their Masonic glory, positioned the U.S. capital at 39 degrees, twice 19.5. So you've got two interesting things. Because leaving Andrews, you're leaving and arriving back at, at uh, twice 19.5. Well, well, that and, and that, that she didn't wear it when she arrived at McAllen. And she didn't wear it to the uh, to the facility she visited, and she didn't wear it, you know, when she left Macau. So it was she left it on Air Force One or on the on the plane. They don't call yeah. it Air Force One. No, it's not the Air Force President's One. not on it. But yep. anyway, but it was the big plane, and uh, <laughs> and and then when she got back, she came off the she came down the ramp wearing the jacket at yep. Andrews, and then got in the. The limousine with it on, and then there's another picture of her uh, walking with her son Baron over, uh, you know, at the White House wearing the jacket. And reporters so, said that she wore the jacket just when she gets back from these trips. She never, ever, ever goes to see Donald. She never goes to the Oval Office. On this trip, she went back to the Oval Office. The reporters, the White House press corps, followed her, photographed her, and she walked into the Oval Office wearing that twice 19.5 jacket with a lettering on the back, I don't really care, do you? <laughs> so this was obviously messaging, but the question is messaging to whom? Um, now, she was supposed to, when she was in Texas, she was supposed to visit not only some of the kids in these detention you know, centers that are kind of like play schools where they're not in prison, but they're basically in an incarcerated situation they can't go outside on except at certain times they don't get phone calls from parents except supposedly twice a week but that we find out from reporting uh, has not happened Uh, they're basically in in a very nice jail and she was supposed to go to the physical detention center run by the by the border patrol to see the kids that were sleeping on mats under mylar blankets when they're when they're newly apprehended and because of the terrible weather, I mean, they've had torrential rains for days uh, in the southern part of, of Texas. That part of the trip suddenly was canceled, like the first lady couldn't order a helicopter to go to the, that detention center in McAllen. She was in a motorcade, and they went right back to the airport, and they flew back to Washington, and she gets off the plane again wearing the weird jacket. Now, you might say this was just kind of peculiar and a kind of a one-off and everybody's making a big deal over nothing and she pulls up out of the closet you know because it was raining in texas but she's not wearing the raincoat in texas where it was raining 
Instead, she was wearing a kind of a light yellow, very thin, you know, because it was very hot down there. But it wasn't a raincoat. It wasn't that raincoat. So I'm looking at this kind of free-floating around, and I'm asking myself, does this have any meaning? And what we try to do, and what I obviously had you doing for years and years, is to look for correlative data. Since we don't know when the plane left Andrews and we don't know when it arrived back, we can't do the alignments. We don't know whether certain things that are part of this long-term, thousands of years old ritual were present in her trip or not. We just don't know. But a completely separate data point makes me think, in fact, this is part of some kind of very bizarre ritual. And here's the data point. We have been able to track a lot of the kids, the, the boys, from like 12 up to 17 in these various detention centers. What we haven't been able to do, when I say we, I mean the American Press Corps, the International Press Corps, any news agency has not been able to track the girls or, even more important, the infants, the toddlers, the babies. We've identified in Michigan now, I think, one 18-month-old baby, but there's no confirmation that this baby in this you know, uh, foster situation is part of the recently arrested families. There has been incredible non-transparency to the point of this, these have become super secrets higher than, you know, any, any black ops operation. All about kids forcibly separated from their parents. And then instead of being kept in Texas or at the border so they could be rejoined with families, they're being put on airplanes and buses and flown to states thousands of miles away where a whole contingent of them showed up in New York City a couple of nights ago at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And a tip from uh, from someone who was part of the news business in New York got a reporter out with a camera crew to photograph six little girls walking into a uh, foster care situation in Harlem. And it turns out, unknown to the governor of the state of New York or the uh, mayor of the city of New York, Bill de Blasio, there are 239 children sent from Texas to New York to be housed separate from their families. 239. 2 into 39 is twice 19.5. And again, the press again and again and again reiterated 239, 239. So it's obvious, Greg, this is part of some incredibly bizarre arcane ritual the numbers we've been tracking for decades show up in the most incredibly bizarre parts of this unfolding story and the other thing which is incredibly bothersome to me is it turns out that there is zero cooperation between the three major agencies that are responsible for these kids now and there's no plans despite whatever anybody's asking reporters and editors and newspapers and networks and you know ap upi whatever nobody can get a plan for how these families are going to be reconnected now that the president signed an executive order making their separation for 20 days illegal and frankly this stinks to high heaven i'm very 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 concerned with the fact that we're not seeing the girls the infants, the toddlers, and we do see numbers, ritual numbers and ritual behavior like this is really, really weird. And it is all stemming from this White House. Richard. Greg. Oh. Yeah, and uh, well, I'm having... Having an extra conversation in the other room right now, but um, I lost something. Oh, so you didn't hear the last part of what I was saying? Oh, no, no, I heard it all. I heard it all. Yeah, I, and and the one thing I was going to also mention is that one of the one of the sayings that you always say about the about the politics and the the rituals and the the you know the events that go on is that there there are no accidents in in politics. Well, that goes back to FDR. He said, in politics, nothing is ever accidental. It's arranged. 
And it's obvious to me that they never, you know, the the agencies were never given a plan for how to put these families back together because they never imagined the public outcry, the visceral, deep American outcry. This is inhuman, inhumane. This is evil personified. They never thought it would hit the fan. So they had no plan to put them back together because it was never supposed to happen that they would have to put them back together, which means we've already, those of us that still feel we're part of a country that doesn't do this, we've derailed the plan. And now they're going to play catch up. And when they, go ahead. And they've had like, I think at least 11 governors have said they're not going to send, or they're going to withdraw their troops, their National Guard troops from the border. Some months ago, the president asked for governors to volunteer portions of the the state militia, i.e. the National Guard, to spend time on the southern border and basically police the border and keep, you know, illegal immigrants from getting into the country. All the governors that were part of that program have now withdrawn their support for this administration and have basically flown their contingents of National Guard troops back to their home states. Then I have also heard that ICE, that ICE is not cooperating with border, border uh, BPS. There's also... <clears throat> CPS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The acronym city gets very confusing, all right? Very confusing. Right. The bottom line is this is a mess. And it appears to be a mess on purpose, going back to FDR. What is the reason? What's the mega reason? Because, you know, as you know, in in physics and engineering, you know, there's a law of what they call diminishing returns. To get the next decimal point, you spend 10 times or 100 times the amount of money to get the first two. So the idea that you have a zero tolerance policy, meaning you're spending inordinate amounts of money on families, refugees, and the traffickers, and the bad guys, and the drugs, and all those bad people, they're slipping through. And he's, uh, yeah, and he's supposed, you know, supposedly this bargaining chip to get the wall and all this, but, I mean, and they're spending, what, 700 and something a night per kid? Or, you know, I haven't verified that, but I've seen that floating around on on the internet. Well, before we get too further into the program, um, first of all, I want to thank you for doing the research. And the fact that you can't find anything is really, really interesting because it should be findable. There's so many people snooping. There's so much social interconnection. There's the Internet. There's Google. There's social networks. There's Twitter. There's Facebook. There's every way to find out. And the fact that thousands of children have disappeared and it's selectively the girls, the toddlers, and the babies is very bizarre. Let me introduce the, my other two guests, all right? Georgia Lambert has over 50 years of experience in the field of esoteric studies. She received formal training in Eastern and Western disciplines, methods, and traditions. And she was the first to be licensed by the state of California to teach meditation and esoteric physiology, an experimental course she presented for three years at the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific. In the past, she's served on the board of directors of United Health Resource, has been on the staff of the Institute for Health Felicitation for three years, taught two years for the Institute of Advancement of Human Potential, and served on the training staff of the Philosophical Research Society for 10 years. That's the Manley Hall uh, Foundation. And I could go on and on, but you can read all her stuff there on the website, so we won't waste more time doing that. John Francis, let me get John in here. John Francis is a retired college mathematics professor who specialized in statistics and experimental design. He also has degrees in physics and psychology, and in the early 1970s, he served in the Pacific 7th Fleet as a U.S. naval officer aboard a guided missile destroyer. In 1975, John had a profound near-death experience that permanently expanded his mind out of its previous as he calls it, limited rational boundaries. He now views life as a highly purposeful and multidimensional evolutionary expression of one universal consciousness. And the rest of his bio is also on the website. So, Georgia and John, please join the conversation. We have a few minutes, about four minutes to the top of the hour. What 
in a few seconds, what is your take on where we are tonight with this bizarre and increasingly bizarre situation? Georgia, you can go first. (laughs) Thanks a lot, John. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies first. Yes, in just a few words. um, um, First of all, you you asked that we take a look at this whole thing from 30,000 feet up. And uh, you also mentioned a new book out by John Meacham, The Soul of America. Yep. I think that's what's up. Um, we can talk about this after the break. And I'm sure John has lots of interesting things about cycles. But we're at a cycle where... The nation as an entity, and it is an entity, and like an entity, it has a personality, and it has a soul or higher self. And for the last, oh, 20, 30 years or so, esoteric thought has said that we're in the third phase of the world war, but it's on the mental plane, and this is a battlefield of ideas. And this is what we're seeing playing out here. It is a battle for the soul of America. I can't believe how many times I've actually heard people on the news using that phrase, this is a battle for the soul of America, or this is a battle for the soul of a party, or whatever. And they've got it absolutely right. And this is what we can get into as we turn on the break. John? John? Yes, well, very well put that. Georgia, that's basically what I would say too, that you know, this to ultimately understand what's going on, one has to take the highest point of view, that's what Albert Einstein said, if you have a problem, you have to look at it to solve it at a level from a beyond which it was created in the first place, so this is all happening at the personality level the clash of egos, the war we see on the planet um, but there is a spiritual component And it has to do with the whole purpose for being on Earth, which is spiritual evolution. And the way this experiment is set up on Earth, the way this game is going, according to metaphysics, is that there are negative forces uh, that are allowed to exist as challenges for our spiritual growth. And we grow by responding to those negative challenges in a positive way, which is love. As Jesus said, love your enemies. It wasn't just for morality purpose. It's an energetic purpose that when we do that, uh, our spirit grows. It becomes more radiant. And we're actually on this planet uh, in an evolutionary process. And there is a state of human uh, consciousness, of human being, beyond the current level of personality. And that's a spiritual level. And... That's how we can understand this, that there's actually, oh, there is a warfare going on between positive and negative, and we're all warriors in a sense, and we can either be um, in denial and deny that it's existing, or we can respond to the challenges in a positive way and grow. Well, that's a perfect setup for what we're going to do when we come back. We're at the top of the hour. My guess, and I have frogs in my throat this morning. My guests this morning are Georgia Lambert, John Francis, and Greg Ahrens. Greg, I'm going to goodnight you, and you can join us again in the uh, third hour when we get into the discussion. And in the meantime, try chasing down those flight times because that's a key part of this puzzle. Did she leave at a ritual time, and were there alignments in the sky for when she came back that were not part of the announced plan? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and trying to grapple with what is going on in our society as we enter the third decade of the 21st century, we shall return.
Thank you. 